Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Mount Vigil podcast. I am Blaine. And I'm Anthony. And I am so excited for this conversation. (laughs) And I'm also a little overwhelmed. You know what I'm saying? We were chatting beforehand. This is the first time on the Mount Vigil podcast we've decided we're going to do an entire book of the Bible, period. Bible study style. But also we're going to do... Um, you know, perhaps the theological high point, artistic high point of the New Testament in one episode. So how are you feeling right now? I'm feeling good. I feel doubtful about the one episode promise. We'll see if that happens. And by doing the whole book, Blaine means that we will talk about the book as a whole. But if you listen to the last episode about the Olivet Discourse and our almost verse-by-verse approach, don't worry. We're not going to be able to do that with Revelation, which is our texting question. That would take the rest of our lives. <laughs> it will take the rest of our lives. Now, you and I were chatting beforehand, and we said that when you pick up a good book on Revelation, and don't worry, friends, we will put many recommendations and maybe even a recommended pathway through resources mm-hmm. in the show notes to this episode. But most books begin with some deconstruction just because of the role that Revelation has come to play in our late modern Western, primarily Protestant world. You have a slightly smaller problem if you're in certain rooms of the church. You can fact check me on this one, but as far as I can tell and find resources to tell, Revelation in the Orthodox Church is not in the lectionary at all. It's read. It's not. It's read in entirety. The Saturday before The lectionary Pascha. was established before Revelation was accepted into the canon, and so it missed its chance to be in the lectionary. That's why. Yeah. And Revelation has been controversial from at least the 300s, which we may get into at some point. And we know that probably everyone listening has some level of ambivalence about this text. Rather than starting with deconstruction, however, we just want to tell you that this is one of the great books of all time, the great apostolic, prophetic, circular letter apocalypses. And we're going to jump in and tell you what it is. So, Anthony, in just defining Revelation, where do you want to start? I do want to... Can can I put a sticky note on that prompt and just back up a little bit and give a little more like context for this conversation? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I don't want to say no to your prompt, which is a good one. Um, But before getting into the text, uh, I felt the need to maybe answer the question of, like, why are Blaine and Anthony talking about the Olivet Discourse and Revelation? If you recall, we are nearing the conclusion of our Story of God series, which is our attempt from beginning to end in the biggest sense possible that we're capable of anyways, of giving our best stab at describing this, the, the story of God, the cosmic level story of God. And um, we talked about resurrection. And now uh, it was Blaine's idea, actually, to get into some of the key texts in the scriptures that people normally associate with the end of the story. So the Olivet Discourse and Revelation are the two big buckets that we're approaching. There are several others in the Bible, but these Daniel, ones, yeah, yeah, uh, Thessalonians, and so on. Um, there's lots of stuff going on in there that relates, possibly or certainly. Um, 
So yeah, we, we are switching to Bible study mode because these texts are really important to how our imaginations are shaped around the end, the age to come. And, uh, and also, in studying Revelation, it became so clear that the whole context of the Mount Vigil Project is really captured well by Revelation. And we'll explain more what I mean by that as we, as we move forward. Um, another preliminary thought is really is more of a, prelim- a preliminary question for you, listener, which is, before we get into study mode, I wanted to ask you how you feel when we talk about Revelation. Or how do you feel when, you're, when the pastor at your church, the preacher, speaker at your church, says, all right, guys, today we're going to study Revelation. How do you feel when this comes up in conversation? Words like eschatology or end times or, or any, any of the kind of uh, the word cloud set of terms that you might associate with this book. You might Many feel, of which are not in there, but Yeah, yes. exactly. Like the word rapture isn't in the Revelation. Um, um, the word, Antichrist. The word Antichrist is not in the book of Revelation. So, uh, like, actually take a minute and just scan yourself. Do you feel uh, a sinking in your stomach? Do you feel like, like your brain turns off because of the, tr- the sort of low-grade chronic trauma of, of people fighting about this and you hate conflict? Do you feel... Um, cynicism, because there's just no way anyone can really say anything useful about this text, which is too out there. Do you feel hope and excitement, etc.? Where do you feel it in your body? Just take a minute and, and actually pause, breathe, and see how you feel. The reason I'm uh, can asking, I t- I'm gonna tell you? Yeah, yeah. Do it. You can coach me as, a, <laughs> as an illustration. One. I I feel a fight or flight response, but it goes into fight for me. Where when someone, and even right now coming into this conversation, when someone brings up the apocalypse of John the theologian, I feel like my soul gets into a fighting crouch because something that I, I think preposterous is about to be said. And a book that, will, that I certainly will reference throughout the course of this conversation, uh, Michael Gorman's Reading Revelation Responsibly, but one of the texts we're going to work with. But he, at the beginning, says, how we teach Revelation has enormous ethical and social implication. And he, he just acknowledges that Revelation has played a unique role in Christianity and that there is a lot of fear and disappointment and just bad teaching around it such that even as you and I are coming to this conversation, I have to remind myself, Anthony is your friend. (laughs) He is a good teacher. He's a wise man. And you are not about to get in a theological fight (laughs) over such an important text. So what should I do? Oh, that's so good. Well done. So you feel the stakes. You you feel what's at stake in this text and the great cost for the church of getting it wrong, of chasing uh, false gospels or destructive interpretations. And uh, yeah, you feel the adrenaline spike that comes with seeing how we hold this text as a, a, a fight. And I think the invitation, if... 
if that's uh, your response, listener, as well, something in that realm, the invitation is to pause and breathe, to actually allow your body to catch up to the truth, which is that Jesus is Lord, and all of us have theological errors. None of us have our theology 100% correct, which is not a, a fatalistic way of saying, therefore, it doesn't really matter because we're all going to get it wrong. But it's a good starting place to realize that our hope is not in ourselves being able to, in ourselves and our own power and our own ability to interpret this text correctly. Our hope really is in Jesus. If we do interpret this text correctly, the more correct that our interpretations are, the more that we'll believe that Jesus has done it, that he is coming, that he is victorious, that he holds us, that we are inside of something bigger than ourselves. And I think the best way to respond probably that I could recommend is just to pray the Agnus Dei. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, grant us peace. Jesus as Lamb of God is perhaps the most central theme of this text, if I had to pick one. And yeah, Jesus is the peace that passes between us. So it's not in our you know, adrenal gland excited state that will be effective in holding this, but it's in meekness, the meekness that Jesus describes that the Sermon on the Mount, gentleness, humility, and, uh, and really trusting that God is good, that he holds us through this conversation. That's so good. I'm saying on air that I love you so much, and I'm so <laughs> excited to have this conversation with you, in particular because of the depth of your reading and your love of Jesus, and I feel like I just know I'm going to learn a lot as we go through this. Well, I love you too. Should we take my sticky note off now? <laughs> so your prompt was... What is it? What is the book of Revelation? Can I answer my own prompt? Yes. Visa la our conversation before we started. Revelation is a discipleship manual. Full stop. It has the form of an apostolic circular letter and a prophecy, and an apocalypse. It has other genres inside it, hymns, benedictions, written prayers, and it is regarded by some, increasingly myself, as the theological high point of the New Testament. And I almost in this conversation, because you've done so much work on Ephesians recently, suggested that, hey, let's go through the Apocalypse and the book of Ephesians, and just ping pong back and forth. Yes. They're similar, like they make the same theological point encoded in different genres, but they line up so beautifully together. I totally agree. I was seeing Ephesians all over in these studies, and probably the next time I preach on Ephesians, Revelation will be in there much more than it has been previously. Um, one of the key texts I'm working off of in this conversation is Scott McKnight's new book uh, written with Cody Matchett called Revelation for the Rest of Us. And the subtitle of that book is pretty fantastic, A Prophetic Call to Follow Jesus as a Dissident Disciple. And if you want to add a comma to prophetic and add other things like apocalyptic and so on, a call to follow Jesus as a dissident disciple is a pretty winning uh, summation of what revelation is, though manual for discipleship is probably my 
number one vote. Yeah, I have a couple more quotes that make this same point. Another subtitle from Michael Gorman, he just calls it following the lamb into the new creation, which is another way of saying the same thing. And then from Richard Balcom's book, A Theology of Revelation, which is far more dense and has no subtitle, but you open it up and he says what Revelation is. And this is just kind of awesome for you nerds who like more uh, technical guild language. A theocentric vision of the coming of God's universal kingdom, contextualized in the late first century world, (laughs) contextualized in a world dominated by the Roman Empire. Here we go. It calls on Christians to confront the political idolatries of the time and to participate in God's purpose of gathering all the nations into his kingdom. That's an epic summary of the Isn't text. that awesome? So what is Revelation? A call on Christians to confront the political idolatry of their time and join Jesus as he gathers all nations into his kingdom. Mm, that's good. That, that particular line pings another uh, upfront thought I, I had for, for us in this conversation, for our listeners, which is you probably, almost certainly— are going to, to have, like something in this conversation is going to torque you specifically as we talk about its political implications the political implications of the book of revelation oh they're so painful they're painful and i would dare say that every single person listening every single person approaching this text has some false political allegiance that they need to repent of and the way that we perhaps we'll see where we go in today's episode are going to con try to contextualize and apply what we learn as disciples to our own world is probably going to make you angry or feel betrayed or feel concerned or whatever it is. My encouragement for you is to each time that you feel that, whether it's the, the you know your vision going black, your, your adrenaline pumping, your, your disgust or frustration or, or whatever, um, confusion and cynicism and all of these things, um, take note of it. Like, what was the thing that was said? And on how do you feel, and what like what are the lines running through your mind? You might even actually like write it down. Um, <laughs> but if you wanted to be massively nerdy, this is something Blaine you would do. I feel like is like put a time the signature on there and think about. I do that you know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm, somehow I'm not surprised. So yeah, uh, like put some context to your feelings. Don't just emote, and you know the neurons start firing and then move on. Like what's happening there? Um, the point isn't. That like certainly not every single thing that we think is 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 correct. I'm sure I'm sure we're gonna, um, you know, make some mistakes or whatever. So I'm not saying do that so that you can conform to Blaine and my vision of Revelation. But what is the Holy Spirit doing in you when when you say Holy Spirit? What's this about? This thing I'm feeling. This thing I'm thinking. This anger I feel. Like actually, as a disciple to Jesus, take some time to submit that to God and see what he has to say about it. It's so good. And then, if that doesn't work, email Blaine (laughs) with all your complaints. I have a question for Anthony. Uh, You (laughs) said, I want to make a brief argument or say a little more about this being the theological high point of the New Testament or one of them. And as I began to read on Revelation, in preparation for this conversation. It was just fascinating to see how much 
looking at the history of the text and the history of the New Testament in general, we have come to see Paul as the New Testament's big theologian. And he kind of is, but that's not even his preferred title. And he is Paul the Apostle, Paul a steward of the mystery. And what gives Paul one of his superpowers is that he is a translator of the gospel into the language and the worldview and the thinking strategies of the Greco-Roman world. And by the way, we are the heirs of that intellectual tradition, so it's no wonder that we find Paul easier. Because John, who wrote the Apocalypse, is a thoroughly Jewish theologian. And his way of doing theology resembles the prophetic tradition, the theological tradition of the Old Testament. But two things that I just wanted to say is, John now is often called John the Seer or John the Revelator. In the first several centuries of the church, all the way up to Nicaea, he was called John the Theologian or John the Divine. And something that's interesting is when texts were being debated uh, for a canon at Nicaea in the fourth century, a fascinating church historian was there, Eusebius, who we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. And he took very good notes on the discussion of the texts. And from his notes, scholars were able to identify the criteria that a letter or, a, or that the text had to meet to be included in the canon. And there are primarily four. Uh, it had to be ancient. It had to be fundamentally apostolic. It had to be widely acknowledged in the church. And it had to be theologically orthodox. So in the end, they did decide that Revelation was those things. But in the notes of Eusebius, it's in a category that's just called debated slash spurious texts mm -hmm. because it was so challenging. And before Nicaea, you already had some pretty widespread disagreement in the church over how it should be read. But um, here's a quote I'm going to give you from Richard Balcom that I just love summarizing what Revelation is in its essence. And here he says, Revelation is not only one of the finest literary works in the New Testament, but it is one of the greatest theological achievements of early Christianity. And yet, blame cutting in here, almost no one experiences it that way. <laughs> so I hope that this conversation is going to be a partial remedy into making uh, more of us with humility, with love, with joy, begin to explore the, the wonder that is the apocalypse of John the Theologian. I love it. My hope for this conversation, even more than any particular theme or image or subject that we talk about and you know, offer up a, an interpretation of my, so in other words, my hope more than the, you listener agreeing with us on any particular point is that you're able to come to the book of revelation, come to this text as, as a disciple and that you're able to be edified by reading it. This is famously the only text that says, you know, the, the readers and keepers of this revelation are blessed. 
So it's a gift to you, and it is something that will make you strong, and it is essential for the church to survive the world that we're in and the world to come, I believe. And so moving on from Revelation as a source of excitation and speculation to a source of, uh, of discipleship and, and sustenance and encouragement is, is my goal for this conversation. A couple of things on like how to approach it, just like in this vein, we shouldn't ask, how do I figure out what each symbol corresponds to? We sh- so much as we should ask, how does this text change my life? How must I repent and live? And here's a few quotes that go along with this. Scott McKnight, speculation is the biggest problem in reading Revelation today. And then you have Eugene Peterson, Revelation is not prediction, but perception. Michael Gorman, Revelation is not about a rapture out of this world, but about faithful discipleship in this world. And my encouragement is that we learn to approach this text as we should approach the whole Bible with the hermeneutic of discipleship, as I call it. The more I try to summarize like a way of approaching the scriptures that I think is, is beneficial for believers, um, the, more, the more this term is the one that I've come up with, I'm sure someone else has, has said it before, as a way of encapsulating how one sits before the scriptures, a hermeneutic of discipleship. And that implies, one, that you're not doing it alone, that you're in submission to your rabbi Jesus, to the Holy Spirit, to the church, the, the apostles, the fathers, um, that you're not aiming for excitation or speculation, but faithfulness. You're not approaching it with presumption or pride or, or being swayed by the world, but you're approaching it with humility and hunger and openness to being taught. I love that. There are two places I want to go from here that are, both relate to groundwork. Because in the hermeneutic that you just recommended, it assumes being an adept humble student. And one thing a student asks is, what is this? <laughs> what? My, my boy Tremper Longman III, uh, his shorthand is... Genre triggers reading strategy. And so you have to ask, what is it so that I can know how to engage it? But So I have notes. I can give a few definitions, actually, of just the three main genres in this text. Or I can say something about when it is written and loop in our boy Irenaeus, which is fascinating for the, for the message of Revelation. Where should we go next? Start with genre. Okay. So there are three main genres. The first is that it's an apostolic circular letter. It is written by a leader in the early church to particular churches, in this case, the seven churches in the text, who are living in a particular historical situation. So here is a definition uh, that's so short from Gorman on what an apostolic letter is. An inspired word addressed to a specific congregation to comfort and challenge people. So as you're reading Revelation, one thing you have in your mind is that one thing that's going on is an apostle, prophet, visionary, knows what churches are going through, and he's writing them a note to tell them who they are and how they should live. That's all I'm going to say about apostolic circular letters. I'm going to hit these three and then you can comment maybe. 
The next thing that it is, is a prophecy. And also from Gorman's observation on apostolic letters, he has this note that's the earliest Christian manifestations of prophecy come to us wrapped in letter form. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 are both considered by scholars to be prophetic texts rather than uh, like apostolic texts, if you want to really uh, be specific about the dividing lines, which is kind of awesome. But I love uh, the definition of prophecy actually from Michael Heiser, and he says, prophets were people who spoke for God, men and women who at God's direction looked their fellow Israelites in the eye and told them they were being disloyal to the God to whom they owed their existence and who had chosen a relationship with them over everyone else on earth. Prophets told people the unvarnished truth and often paid dearly for it. Another way is from Benedict XVI is that the distinguishing mark of prophecy in Israel is intimacy with God, seeing God and seeing his way. So the prophet sees the way God sees and is often entrusted with messages of comfort and challenge for people to call them back to the way. And prophetic addresses are usually quite gnarly. One more, it being an apocalypse. Because you get into the letter and you realize, oh, right away I'm reading a letter that is going to be read slash performed in churches in Asia Minor. Oh, wow. Uh, well, he's also having these vis- visionary experiences and, ter- and interpreting them in terms of the Hebrew prophets. So he's for sure, this is a prophetic text as well. But it's also an apocalypse which is a genre for which we do, and I would say kind of, have modern equivalents. We only kind of. Uh, You can push back on that, but I would say the go-to associations like political cartoons or something like that Hmm. are ishy in terms of, yeah, that is apocalypse-like. But here we go. Here's John Collins, the biblical scholar, not the Bible Project guy, the, the John of the Bible Project, you count. You're a biblical scholar in my book. A genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient, disclosing transcendent reality, which is both temporal insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation, and it's spatial insofar as it involves another supernatural world. Michael Gorman on Apocalypse. Its basic function is clear to sustain the people of God, especially in times of crisis, particularly evil and oppression. Apocalyptic literature both expresses and creates hope by offering scathing critique of oppressors, passionate exhortations to defiance, and sometimes even preparation for confrontation, and unfailing confidence in God's ultimate defeat of the present evil. Here's me. A visionary theological experience that puts human history in its ultimate cosmic context, thereby orienting its audience to their situation and reminding them how they should live in view of God's reality. What's missing? (laughs) (laughs) Excellent summary. So going back to the circular letter, some, I'll just comment on what you said there. So the implication that this is a circular letter written to churches is that it is pastoral. It is for those people. 
it's not just for the people that happen to be the last to be uh, alive on earth when Jesus returns and everyone else it's kind of useless for. It is for the church, and specifically for seven churches in Western Turkey uh, on the near the coast or on the coast of the Aegean Sea, which is between Greece and Turkey. I don't want to underemphasize this point. This isn't just a I told you so that only becomes relevant when Jesus returns and all of the predictive elements of the text are fulfilled, and we can look back on the other side of resurrection and and see who had the the correct interpretation of what the beast was or 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 whatever your thing that you're interested in right now is this is a letter written by a man who was involved in the church and cared for a a region of believers like in their lifetime this everything in this text mattered yeah uh, an interesting way to think about how this how this book, I'm going to keep calling it a book, though it's a letter, um, because of habit. Uh, so I'm not going to correct myself in this entire conversation. But an interesting way to think about the revelation and how it might have been received is that these, the seven, the, the uh, parts that are specific to the seven churches, imagine if you were in one of those churches and you got your copy of this letter and maybe it only had your, your seventh out of those seven letters. It's not clear whether it came as a package or not, but one way of one reasonable way to imagine how this letter was received is that, you know, the church in Laodicea got their copy of it and it was written to them. Uh, And then what we have is the collected seven put together in one text. As prophecy, I think, uh, what's his name? Brueggemann. Brueggemann, prophetic imagination. Read prophetic imagination to have a bigger sense of what the prophetic is about. It's not just predictive, though it can be predictive. We must grow our sense of the prophetic to get beyond simply foretelling events and into, you said, uh, comfort and challenge. And I would say like comfort and critique. So the prophet critiques the, the current world system often at a great peril, at great peril to the people who are receiving the prophecy and to himself, herself. Um, so the prophet like looks out on the world and the system of evil at work and critiques it. And then he looks at the, the audience that he's speaking to and critiques them. You are like Babylon, you know, church X. And, uh, and then it's not just a it's not just a harsh on the people that are um looking like the world but it's also to your point to comfort them so the 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 prophetic word is always comforting if you submit to the transformative conviction of sin that the holy spirit brings there's real comfort uh there's utter relief and holiness there's real comfort in uh in repenting and turning back to jesus Going to Revelation as apocalyptic, um, I'll just read further in the part that you were quoting, which is a quote within a, uh, within a quote here of Revelation for the rest of us. It also has the purpose of exhortation and or consolation by means of divine authority. And then going on, John created a vision-based narrative that exposes the present in light of a heavenly supernatural transcendent reality and wants to reorient the life of Christians in the seven churches in light of that vision. In so doing, he appeals to all the senses of the reader 
the readers or listeners. He wants them to see what he saw, to feel what he felt, to hear what he heard, to touch what he touched. And because of these sensations, to imagine an alternative world and to live in that alternative world now. It takes an apocalyptic imagination to write and to read the book of Revelation. Sorting out what an apocalypse is then, synthesizing apocalypse, and applying the synthesis to Revelation is simplistic and unhelpful. Revelation just does what it does, not because that's how apocalypse works, that's how apocalypses work, but because that's how Revelation works. In fact, Revelation is the first book in history to call itself an apocalypse. Woof. By the way, I have recommended reading Revelation responsibly so often over the years that, Michael... I think that it's only fair that, you know, we get some kind of cut at some point. And <laughs> Scott McKnight, we're going to try to help you sell books like hotcakes. Uh, and <laughs> Important, so... Importantly, Scott McKnight, uh, Revelation for the Rest of Us, is building on the work of reading Revelation responsibly. Yeah. yeah. Both of which are building on uh, kind of unreadable to most people theological work by Christopher Rollins and by Richard Balcom. And I mean a host of others. Yeah. So here's the thing. When someone tells you that we're talking about you, I want to hang out. All right? So <laughs> this is just – this is the only uh, request in this is that sometime we just sit down and get beers together and talk about the apocalypse. Thank you very much. I think my brother has studied with Scott McKnight, so we might be one degree removed from, from him. Well, besides the fact he listens to our podcast. <laughs> This is a major source of sucker for him in the apocalypse itself. <laughs> All right, from here, I have two places. Oh, I'm, I, I uh, wow. I am going to say something because it's short about the historical situation, which is fascinating. And it's fascinating because when I grew up and I went to Christian universities, I even went to, for a short period of time, like a private Christian middle school that had Bible classes. And this text was always taught as being written to a people who were under intense active persecution, which causes you to interpret it in a certain way. The interesting thing is that the kind of overwhelming evidence is that that is not true, meaning it was written after, after the persecution, the systematic persecution under Nero, it was written somewhere between 81 and 96 AD. And here's Irenaeus and against heresies. We will not, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of Antichrist, for if it were necessary that his name should be distinctly revealed, it would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalyptic vision. For it was he who saw it not long since, almost in our day, towards the end of Domitian's reign. And what you need to know about uh, Domitian, 81 to 96, is that if, if you were going to go all in for the Jesus way, your life would be really hard, as it always is. But Domitian was a little more of the opinion, like, we kind of don't care what people think, all right? So if you want to say that Jesus is the incarnation of this God from a people in a backwoods part of the Roman Empire, fine. But just also participate in the entirety of Roman public life. 
don't throw sand into the gears. And so the temptation of the people in Revelation, to whom the letter is addressed to the churches, is not apostasy under persecution, but cultural drift in an age of comparative peacetime that looks shockingly like our situation. So that's what you need to know about timing. And for me, that made a light come on, especially because, you know, read it as this is the persecuted church. That's why the saints are always dying all the way through this text. And they go, well, actually, it's just written to the kind of ordinary time church where following Jesus is going to mean suffering if they choose to go for it. And those are the pictures that you're being given. The point that you're making was first, I first became aware of it under the tutelage of Bart Ehrman, who is a notorious within Christianity. I think he's an atheist. He's certainly um, anti-Christianity, anti-faith. But he's actually a pretty great teacher in many ways, just from like a, a secular perspective. And years ago, I took one of his courses on, under the Great Courses banner called From Jesus to Constantine, A History of Early Christianity. One of the main points he made in teaching, I didn't realize at first who he was. That was my first introduction to him. He's kind of famous within uh, certain realms of Christianity now. Uh, one, one of the main points he made was to kind of deconstruct maybe an exaggerated sense of Christian persecution in the way that it's held now which is to say that it wasn't totalizing, it wasn't nonstop in every sphere of Christianity under, under Roman rule, it was typically acute and uh, under certain portions of Roman r- rulership and regions. And he, he said a lot about why that was. First of all, the Romans didn't, you know, didn't care if you were Christian, um, uh, like pagan religion was not exclusive in the way that we think of religion being now. And so you could worship any number of folk gods, any number of mystery cults, <clears throat> in any number of mystery cults, etc. You simply had to also pay homage to the civic religion, which was an actual pagan religion, and uh, to you know, pay uh, to ple- plead allegiance to the emperor and so on. So it's not like the Romans particularly had it out for the Christians more than in anyone else, though there are lots of interesting quotes about how they perceived Christians and so on. So the point that you're making that it's not clear how much present persecution there was uh, in, in the world of John's audience is a really important point. Because for us to, especially us here in the West, not us every, at every point in the world today, but for us here in the West, there's not that much persecution. I think... There is persecution, and there's, I believe, much more to come for people in the West or anywhere in the world. But to realize a couple things. One, I don't want to denigrate. I don't want to uh, make generic the role of the martyr. I think that role should be revered. It is an honored place in uh, the the world of the church uh, and the life of the church. To be a martyr is a a sacred and, and holy calling. At the same time, I want one of my goals in this conversation is that we all increasingly shape our imagination around this idea that every Christian is called to be a martyr. Maybe not one of the martyrs who actually has to, um, to the point of death, 
maintain faithfulness. But in our lives, Jesus does call all his disciples to take up the cross daily. And we are called to die to self and to become alive to Christ. And so there's this kind of, maybe let's say lowercase m martyrdom that every single Christian is called to. And the temptation away from that, that path is the temptation of the world, is the temptation of Babylon, and we're all subject to it. So the theme of martyrs is very prominent throughout the text of Revelation. Um, it's, it's perhaps the main way that Christians are portrayed in this letter. Um, and so we, there's a way for us to connect ourselves to that image. Now, there is like scholarly debate around exactly how much persecution there was under Domitian, et cetera. It doesn't matter. Um, these points stand for us. A couple other things about background. I, I take the view that John had this vision in uh, AD 95 and wrote it in 95 or 96. And I also take the view, the very straightforward one, that John is John the Apostle, that the guy who wrote Revelation also wrote the Gospel of John and at least the first if not the first two of the three John epistles. And uh, beyond that is debatable, but in, in one sense, that also doesn't matter. Um, it's the picture of how John wrote this letter. I'm not sure how much background ground we need to cover here, but John was in exile on an island called Patmos. On a prison island. It was a prison island. There was a salt mine there, and probably the people that lived there worked there. It was a prison colony. And John specifically had this revelation, had this vision in a cave on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. So, Whilst praying. Yes. And perhaps he's actually with the gathering. You can imagine the, you know, a Christian community on Patmos gathering in caves, and on a Sunday morning, my guess is at worship, he has this vision. Fantastic. I love what you're saying. Where I want to go, I want to take a page, or take a hint, from the books we've been referencing and talk about theological message of Revelation, kind of the, the big beats and characters, and then after that, I have my notes on a kind of seven-part structure-ish, ish, <laughs> um, which then we can kind of talk through uh, the big chunks before we, we begin to drill down. Sound good? Sounds great. All right. When you go into a book like Revelation, you do need to know its, its main theological point. And you get it in the first verse because it's the revelation of Jesus. This is an extended picture of Jesus, the king of the universe which we will come back to again and again. And Revelation depicts God's war with the powers of empire and the rebellious spirits that back them, which he does in his sacrificial way of death. And it reminds its readers of God's victory and the final marriage of heaven and earth. That's me. Here's Francis Allen Murphy trying to summarize. What is Revelation just about? Like the big thing, it's the revelation of Christ and the giant picture of history as a cosmic war. You could almost stop there. Mm -hmm. But Francis Ellen Murphy says, the leitmotif of revelation is worship combined with judgment. 
It focuses on the slaughtered lamb whose sacrifice is the judgment of the world and whose disciples bear witness by sharing his fate. I would add to that, but there's much that's good to there and that the central character is the lamb. Mm-hmm. And yet he's going to be revealed, apocalypsed, in mind-blowing ways that connect him to the entire story of the Bible. Uh, and then it's going to tell people how his kingdom comes and call them to follow him in, in that glorious way. But theological picture, all of history is shaped by the story of God, which, is, which we've been telling so far culminates in Christ, through whose death, resurrection, and ascension, the kingdom has come. If you know the Nicene Creed, you know the theological message of Revelation. Raise your hand if you know the Nicene Creed. By heart? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't asking you, I was asking people Okay. (laughs) I love that in the book we've just mentioned, Revelation for the Rest of Us, Scott McKnight and his graduate assistant, scholar in his own right, accomplice. Mm -hmm. Uh, No denigration there. They start with a playbill. And they say, coming into this, knowing that what you're actually about to see is like a multi-sensory spectacle, it might be helpful to know who the characters are. And so they lay out, I love it, what they call Team Lamb and Team Dragon. And they go, here you go. Here are the characters you're going to meet. Team Lamb, God, and the Lamb, and the Seven Spirits. The woman, the seven churches, allegiant witnesses, the four living things, the 24 elders, the angels, all designed for the new Jerusalem. Good guys. (laughs) Bad guys, Team Dragon, the dragon and all the beasts inhabiting Babylon. Kings, sorry, the dragon and the beasts and all inhabiting Babylon. Kings and merchants and sailors and anyone who chooses to have the mark of the wild thing. John names some others. The Nicolaitans and Balaam and Jezebel. Two casts of characters. Through whom all of human history and the present situation of the church is going to be interpreted. So we're about to see just a picture of how does God see human history? And that's where we launch in to the overall structure. What do you want to say before we proceed? Okay. So between in the silence, following Blaine's question of where do we go from here? Blaine and I just had a long discussion on how to have this discussion. And here's where I think we're going to go. The character that we're going to zoom in on and spend time discussing is Jesus. Jesus revealed as the the sacrificed lamb. And the other ways he's revealed in Revelation. He is the main character of this text. And the Revelation is the revelation of Christ. It's often called John's Apocalypse, but it's actually the Apocalypse of Christ that we are, that this whole book is. If you have NIV, it says revelation from Christ. Yes. There are very good scholarly papers written against that. That is an unnecessary move. And that's not the only, it's just the only popular Bible that does that. Well, we actually made that point earlier in this Story of God series. In one of our early episodes, I distinctly remember talking about it being like the revelation of the Father given to Christ, sent by an angel to John. And yeah, it's probably more accurate that it's the revelation of Christ to the whole cosmos that John receives. So... Uh, next episode, I believe we're going to try and basically go through the whole book. So go through it um, almost chapter by chapter, more like section by section, and zoom in on some things. And then 
a third episode on, on Revelation will be answering the question, asking the question, how do we live in Babylon? How does how how as disciples, how do we respond to this text and practice reading through the manual the, the manual of discipleship? So for now If it's a month or so from now, people are gonna pause and skip to that episode because it's gonna be everyone's favorite. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be a good conversation. I'm, I'm I'm honestly the most excited about that. That's that's where the most of my notes are. Let's start with let's end this conversation, which is kind of a long introduction to the larger one on Jesus as he is revealed in Revelation. Go. Fantastic. I'm just going to start Revelation 1 because there's a progression to the image of Jesus in the text, building from cosmic king to lion to lamb, and I'm going to, I'm going to punt to you, but this is where I'm going to start. Revelation 1, starting in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash on his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now what's happening there? I will tell you. you Ancient of days. The Ancient of days! (laughs) So, conservative estimates, there are 600 allusions to the Old Testament canon in Revelation, I think a good round number that you said you agreed with, so we'll go with that, is around a thousand. And these images are constantly layered over each other. So I'm going to give you Daniel 7 and Ezekiel 1. Daniel 7, 9 to 10. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. So that's a picture of Yahweh, the uncreated creator on his throne. And you see him again in Revelation, but who is it? Jesus. Jesus is the complete revelation of Yahweh. They are the same. Here's Ezekiel 1, 26 and 27. And above the expanse, above their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what the, had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all round. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him. So you're, you start Revelation with this epic picture, turn, and who do you see? The God of the universe, the most high, the one beside whom there is no other who has no rival, and who is it? Jesus. And weaving all of this Old Testament imagery, even, you know, Scott McKnight points out, pagan imagery for the most high God. You're getting Christ, but then the picture is going to build. So what does it build towards, my friend? (laughs) A very obvious thing to state here is that the book of Revelation is fundamentally Trinitarian. 
And a thing to be watching for as you read, a thing, a question to be asking is, how is God revealing himself as the Holy Trinity? This whole vision John has while he is in the Spirit. And here we have a picture of Jesus being equated with the Ancient of Days, who in the Old Testament is just God, is Yahweh. So Jesus as God and the Holy Trinity as the Holy Trinity, and there's more to be said about the Spirit moving forward, is just all over all over this whole text. Um, a book, if you want to do a deep dive on this question, is one of my source texts here is The Trinity in the Book of Revelation, Seeing Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and John's Apocalypse by Brandon Smith. Side note here, one of our goals is simply to give you tons of resources that can help you orient to the, uh, the apocalypse, to John's apocalypse here. Yeah, and I'm going to give you just one verse because it's so saturated with Trinitarian theology. Uh, you get it in the greeting mm-hmm. in four and five. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you in peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. All right. So you nerds know that that is Yahweh's covenant name. And so- That first one from him who is, is the Greek translation of Yahweh. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, Enough said. So you well, have, have also another. We're just going to be and from this. I'm gonna another get side note here is that is to come is better translated is coming, which is much more urgent and is like it's happening. Yes, but in that whole phrase, you get Father. You know, you get the God Most High, the first person of the Trinity, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. We're going to probably drill down on this in episode two, but those aren't seven unique spirits. The best argument to be made is that that is the Holy Spirit and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and ruler of the kings of the earth. So you get an amazing Trinitarian theology in the greeting of the letter. Mm. Say more. (laughs) So Jesus is revealed as uh, the, the transfigured figure. You might recall in Matthew and elsewhere, I think, the, uh, the picture of Jesus on the mountaintop being transfigured and being surrounded in light. We have a similar picture here. But then John goes on, and the, onto the full are the, the most central image of Jesus throughout Revelation. Which, okay, comes as something as, of a surprise. Um, just... W- Here's another thing that's happening in Revelation. There's going to be a distinction between hearing and seeing all the way through the book. My like absolute personal favorite of which is actually has to do with the reconstituted people of God. Okay, this is is one of my my notes as well. (laughs) I know exactly where you're going. I know, but I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say. Because we're talking about Jesus. And so you hear... Uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then you see uh, the lamb. So let me give you the actual verses. And one of the elders said to me, sorry, this is starting in um, chapter five, verse five, no one can open the scroll and he's weeping because no one can like actually rule the cosmos. And then he hears from one of the elders uh, who have replaced the rebellious spirits on God's divine counsel. 
weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So he hears the the Messiah, the king in the line of David, the lion. And then he turns and he sees. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So he hears of a lion and he turns and he sees a sacrificed lamb. That turn, that rub, to use the Shakespearean language, is so central to this whole text. And it's, it's important for us to make that turn as well, to realize that Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He is the great and conquering king. And when we turn to look at him, how does he conquer? He dies. How does he reveal himself? How is he imaged? He is, the picture is a, a sacrificed lamb. Going back to that, and this connects with something else, going back to, to chapter one, the passage that you read. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Uh, all throughout Revelation, you see that the way that Jesus wages war is with his word, by speaking truth and by simply speaking into reality, shaping reality with his very word. Yes, and that image comes back again and again in the book. Where is the sword? In his mouth. And why is this so important? Because uh, it's, it is very easy, and Christians have done this throughout history, to see God as vindictive and violent and to, based on their interpretation of what we think God is like, to act that way in the world. You become like your image of God. And so there is a picture, as we'll get into in this text, of the followers of the Lamb, Team, team Lamb, uh, as being an army. We are an army. We are in the Lord's army. But we don't wage war as the world does. The one on our banner is the sacrificed Lamb. I've got I chills right now. I man. just want to pause and give a personal story about this. I have to confess that there have been times in the last few years, especially, where my flesh just boils at the revelation of Jesus as the sacrificed lamb. You and I had a conversation while we were putting your shed together a few years to go, years ago on, on your property. And I was just confessing how on the way to your house, I had been struggling so hard because I saw this vision of a way to shape the world through the way the world teaches, which is through, honestly, through violence and through um, worldly influence and things like that. And I felt this very real temptation. I was responding to destruction and evil that humanity was perpetuating on the earth. And I was feeling incensed about that. And my fleshly desire in response to it was to wage war, like actual war. And uh, so I was just confessing and I had to repent of of like, like, I've been following you, Jesus, for years, and yet here I am, like deeply tempted to go off in this other direction, to pursue uh, a kingdom, to pursue a path of shaping the world that, it, that is not cruciform and that is not led by the Lamb. And it was like, my flesh, man, it, it's, it's hard to fully verbalize just how, how deep this went, how deep this fleshly revulsion to the way of, again, the way of the cross, the way of sacrifice, the way of going low and being humble and serving and so on. Like, I really struggled with that. And so, I, to me, I, I, don't, I, I don't say lightly that 
Jesus is revealed as the Lamb, and he wages war by by preaching the gospel. Um, like he actually defeats the enemy, and he is. Uh, we should like look to God as as the one whom the only one that we fear. Uh, one of the fruits of studying this text should be the fear of the Lord, and yet we should also see God revealed in Christ as the gentle and lowly one who was humble and died as his conquering act. I feel the pain you're talking about so deeply. The way of Jesus is the right way, and the picture that you get in Revelation is actually going to answer the why question. Wait a second. He conquers by dying, and his followers conquer by dying. Why would we do it this way? Well, join us for two more conversations while we talk about this epic image uh, that is so compelling about why someone would do it that way. I, I have in my grab bag, I'm actually just struggling to pick one because I have such good recent stories of this being so painful. I'll just give one. I was telling my wife about transhumanism, and I was telling her about, uh, in particular, trying to summarize the work of Yuval Harari mm-hmm. and Homo, De- Homo Deus, that book, which I, I can barely think about it without getting angry because... Uh, there was a time in legal jargon where pirates were called the enemy of all mankind. There are certain scholars who I put that to, and uh, <laughs> I think Yuval Harani is one of them, um, where I'm like, you are the enemy of all mankind. Um, this project is so profoundly evil, and I felt that the kind of anger that is uniquely associated with helplessness to stop something from happening. And I took a bike ride, and I had been contemplating these images in Revelation. And I knew what I had to start doing was praying for Yuval, and not praying like God's judgment or correction or intervention, but like blessing him as a child of God, blessing him as someone Mm. who was made in the image of God. I cannot tell you how painful it was. I'm on this ride. I'm praying just to see Yuval as like a child of God. And I'm just like crying on my bike because I'm so angry um, (laughs) that this is the way Christ conquers because (laughs) I just want to burn it all down in my flesh. I want the way of the sword. And yet I feel even in real time and in our third episode I have examples that are e- that are far less abstract because this is a writer and an intellectual that I do not know at all. Mm. Though I did picture at the end of praying for him, I'm like, I would just love to ask him to dinner <laughs> um, and just ask him about his story and just try to bless him. Um, but it was like, man, this this action this really hurts um, to feel so right and to shift into the mode, even just in prayer, of going low is deeply painful, but this is the Jesus way. Mm. So Yuval, I know you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to uh, grab drinks, talk about your work, 
hear a little more about your story so you can just email me at Mount Vigil. Mm. I hope that happens. <laughs> Episode four in the Revelation series, our interview with Hirari. <laughs> <laughs> this makes me think of Peter at Gethsemane and his instinct to pull the sword out and cut off the ear of one of the the crew that came to arrest Jesus. Uh, like it's it, it, this this violent response to evil, like paying evil with evil, it goes so deep in my flesh. It's it like th- these are the movies I grew up on, and honestly, probably still enjoy. <laughs> Not probably like totally. I still watch these movies to be honest, and I guess that's an opportunity for repentance. I like that scene. Peter pulls the sword out. The movie I love to watch is the one where he, he all the other disciples pull out their swords and they just lay waste. And instead, we are told to rest a little longer. Going to Revelation 6, starting in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls, the lives of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So this call to stay pure, wear this white robe, and to continue to submit to the way of the Lamb and to rest a little longer and to to not turn our anger into sin, we should righteously be angry at evil and destruction and the harm of the vulnerable and the innocent and so on in the, in the world. We should actually have uh, a very strong reaction to this. In fact, we certainly don't hate sin enough in the world. But what we're, what we're given is a white robe and we're told to rest a little longer. I'm, I'm obviously extrapolating a bit, so don't criticize my exegesis here, but, but this, this, this call to trust that Jesus is coming back and that there will be a righteous vengeance, not our own vengeance, but God's. There will be a setting right of all things is our hope. And one of the temptations of every Christian will be to try and get good on our own terms, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, just like every person who rebels against God does. We have a vision of the good and we try to get it in our own time and by our own way. And the call to repentance is like, well, first of all, the call is like, Holy Spirit, where am I currently seeing a vision of the good that isn't your vision of the good? Where am I currently out of union with you in rebellion, honestly? Where am I pursuing a vision of the good? Where am I reacting to evil with evil and to uh, confess whatever the Spirit brings up in you and to repent and to be conformed to the way of Jesus as the sacrificed lamb. My closing word on this is just going to be to share Scott McKnight's epic, akathist-esque summary of who Jesus is in Revelation, because it's so beautiful. And he writes this, The writer is called faithful and true which is what Jesus is called in 3.14, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Unlike Babylon, who is drunk on the blood of God's people, Jesus will bring justice as, as was predicted of the Messiah in Isaiah 11. 
like Daniel 10.6 and Revelation 1.14, he has fiery eyes. This image means that he is coming to purge evil from God's creation. He is not wearing crowns, but rather diadems, which are worn as a symbol of kingships. Roman emperors wore wreaths, not diadems, because the former symbolized victory and the latter kingship. The way of the lamb is not the way of the dragon or Babylon. From the faithful and true rider on the white horse, from the word of God's mouth comes a sharp sword that will strike down the nations, an image that is also characterized as the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. The battle is won by a sword that comes from the mouth of the lion, the lamb, the logos. The word is the weapon of the divine white horse rider. The lion is the lamb, the word of God, who is the emperor and lord over all the earth's lordless lords. He will win and he will reign. There will be a great victory feast, a final judgment, and a splendorous city descending from heaven, the new Jerusalem. Smack dab in the middle of New Jerusalem is the Lamb and God. They are the sanctuary or temple where the Lamb will replace the sun and moon and from God's and the Lamb's throne will flow the river of life's water. The longing for the new heavens and the new earth is the longing for the presence of God with us, for the Son who morphs and morphs in this book to come back to earth and undo injustice, defeat evil, and establish the new Jerusalem by the word, not by the sword. Lord, he's coming, he's coming 